You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. Welcome to Midtown Church on this first Sunday of Advent. Welcome. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the leadership development pastor here on staff at Midtown. And very glad to have all of you uh, a little bit small. I guess the room has filled up a little bit since I was standing in the back. It's crazy how it does that every week, how it looks really empty, and then the break happens, and then there's more people. Uh, so welcome. Uh, we are wrapping up our series in the book of James this morning, and then next week Jake will kick off our Advent series. And uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 5. And before we look at this final passage in the book of James... Uh, I want to take us back to the beginning so that we can see the connection between the beginning of the book and the end of the book, and it will help us to keep the context of the book in mind. Every passage in the book of James, and this is true of all New Testament books, every passage in the book of James has to be interpreted in light of the context and the purpose for the book. Otherwise, we risk coming away with a, with a flawed or an insufficient uh, interpretation of the text. So just to remind you, the theme verse of the book of James is in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James says this, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete.'" not lacking anything. So the book of James is instruction in how to live by faith, even through the trials and struggles of life and even through great suffering. Now, for his readers, their main trial was persecution. They were being persecuted for their faith. Now, we might not really be able to relate to that so much in America because the persecution that we might face here doesn't really compare with the persecution that they faced or with the persecution that many Christians face around the world even today. Uh, James's readers and many other followers of Jesus in our world, they have to fear the raised fist or the raised sword. And in America, Christians tremble in fear of the raised eyebrow. So in that respect, our trials and suffering are different, but there's still so much in our passage this morning that we can relate to even now in a modern context. Because as long as we live in a broken world, we will continue to face trials and we will continue to face suffering in various timeless ways. So just a few of those ways. For one, we have to contend with a broken creation. We have to contend with the broken creation. The very world, the very creation that we interact with is affected by sin, and our relationship with it is cursed. The Bible speaks to this in Genesis 3 and Romans 8 and in other places. We see it in the form of natural disasters. We see it in the form of physical illness. We see it probably most evidently in our own mortality. We also have to to deal with the reality of broken communities, So we have broken creation and broken communities. So not only do we have to deal with our own sin, but we also live in a world full of sinful people, and all of that affects us. Um, So trying to have relationship with other people who are broken, when we are broken ourselves, it creates opportunities for suffering because our sin will affect them, and their sin will affect us also. And even Jesus was not immune from the effects of sin in his relationships with his family, with his friends, with his religious community and with his government. So we also have to deal with broken communities. And then another timeless way uh, we see is in in a broken culture. 
a broken culture. So these believers that James is writing to, they're, they're struggling with how to have enduring faith and how to live by faith in the middle of a culture with a radically different value set and a radically different set of assumptions about the way the universe works. And that has not changed in 2,000 years. So Christians in this country have tried for decades to exert control over our culture through political maneuvering and through uh, all sorts of other means. And we've not yet managed to align our culture uh, with our values. If anything, you could argue that actually the, the effect has been the opposite. So part of being a follower, a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus is learning how to be faithful to God in the midst of all this brokenness and the suffering and the pain and the trials and the struggle that it can bring into our life. We have to learn to take our world as it is and not as we would have it and learn how to navigate life in the midst of confusion and suffering and grief and pain. That's what Jesus did. And as apprentices of Jesus, we want to do what he did. So trials and difficulties and suffering, they're inevitable, they're timeless, they're perpetual, they're sure to come, but James says they are profitable also if we face them in the right way. Suffering is inevitable, but it's also profitable. It's also beneficial to us. It's good for us, but only if we face it in the right way. So James's message in this letter is that if we persevere in faith, even in the midst of the greatest possible trial or suffering or pain, we can become spiritually mature as a result. So some trial comes into my life, and it may be big, and it may be small, and it may look this way, or it may look that way, but in any case, I have a decision to make. And the decision is, am I going to remain faithful? Am I going to follow Jesus and keep following, no matter how hard it gets in the face of that problem? Am I going to obey Jesus and keep obeying, uh, regardless of the cost of that obedience? Am I going to trust him and keep trusting him, even when nothing seems to make sense? And in our passage this morning, the closing uh, portion of the letter, James is going to address a very specific concern when it comes to suffering in this life, and it's this. What if my suffering is overwhelming? Like, what if I'm trying so hard to be faithful, and I've been persevering, and I'm just, I'm beginning to feel exhausted, and I feel like I'm, like I'm going down? Like, what if I feel like I can't go on? What if I feel like the pain is too great and I can't possibly withstand it? What if I feel discouraged and I feel beaten down and I feel defeated? Or what, what if I fail and I fall into sin in the midst of my suffering? What then? What do I do? James has the answer. Let's look at James 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Literally, the word is suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Now these verses, uh, 14 and 15 specifically, they've been the subject of controversy in the church. There's been some debate about what these verses mean and about how to apply them. Uh, some Christians will use this passage as a proof text to teach that uh, full physical health is always just a prayer away. And human experience tells us otherwise. 
And there's also the Roman Catholic tradition where this text is used for the basis for uh, extreme unction. So that is the, the practice of a priest attending to the bedside of a dying person and administering last rites and anointing them with oil in order to sort of score them some points with God before they die. And then there's a third view that would be kind of relating this process outlined by James, the praying and anointing with oil, to the modern practice of invoking God through prayer and then using medicine. So we're going to pray and then we're going to consult a physician. What I want to do briefly is just explain some of the confusion and then give you my interpretation. So the root of this confusion has to do with what James meant by his use of the word that is translated sick in verse 14. Nearly every English Bible translates this word sick, even the more word-for-word translations like the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. The Greek word astheneo, which is translated sick in verse 14, is used 34 times in the New Testament, and it literally means to be weak. Now, it is used in the Gospels to refer to bodily weakness, including illness. So sick is a legitimate translation of the word. However, The word is used in Acts and in some of the other epistles in the New Testament to refer to different types of weakness, which could include spiritual weakness or emotional weakness or a weak conscience. And so in each case, we have to look at the context in order to determine the appropriate meaning of the word. And we have to do the same thing here in James, where the context of the whole book is suffering and persevering through trials. So my opinion, and it is just my opinion, okay, so you can argue with me if you want, My opinion is that sick is not necessarily the strongest translation of the word astheneo in verse 14 of our passage. I think weak or weary could be a better translation. And the reason I think that is that in verse 15, if you look, James uses another word which is translated sick. And this is the Greek word komno. And that word literally means to be weary. The only other New Testament use of komno, which is in Hebrews 12, very clearly emphasizes that same meaning, that it's weary. So what we have in our passage this morning is we have two different Greek words that are translated to mean sick. And when we consult the other New Testament uses of these two words, the first one occasionally means sick, and the second one never means sick. So I take the concrete meaning of the second word in verse 15 to clarify the cloudier meaning of the word in verse 14. And then we also have to talk about the word save in this passage, Greek word sozo. Uh, James uses sozo five times in the letter, and most English translations translate it all five times as save. And that confuses people because Christians today use the word save as kind of a conversational shorthand to mean salvation from hell. Uh, We went over this a couple weeks ago when I taught on faith and works in James 2, so I'm not going to deep dive on this because you can hit up the podcast for that information. But I'll just say again that in the book of James, the word save never refers to salvation from hell. It's always talking about deliverance from something else. And in our passage this morning, the meaning of the word is clarified by the phrase, the Lord will raise them up, or the Lord will lift them up. So I would translate 14 and 15 this way. Uh, Is anyone among you weary or tired or in despair? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will deliver or restore or refresh the weary soul, and the Lord will raise them up. Now let's talk about what James means when he says the elders should anoint this person with oil. The, The word that is translated anoint in verse 14 is not the ceremonial word for anointing. It's the common word. So it literally means to put oil on it. It's the same word that's used in Luke 7. A woman put oil on Jesus' feet 
or the host would put oil on the heads of his guests uh, when they came to his house. It's also the word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching on fasting. And he says, look, when you fast, don't do it the way that the Pharisees and the hypocrites do it. Because they neglect their appearance so that people will notice and ask them about it. So instead, anoint your head and wash your face. So in other words, put some product in your hair and like go about your life. And keep your fasting between you and God. Now this helps clarify James' instruction in, in uh, chapter 5. There's nothing magical or like extra spiritual about the anointing that James is talking about. His point is just very simply that the weary person would be refreshed and would be encouraged by the elders who put oil on their head. Because weary people need encouragement, right? I mean, sometimes we're going through something and it's really difficult. And sometimes, I mean, maybe not all of us, but if you're like me, maybe your tendency is to isolate if you're going through something really hard, maybe your tendency is to withdraw from relationships. Maybe your tendency is to kind of, you know, be sort of protective or defensive about it. We don't really want to let people into it. So maybe you don't want to bother other people with it, or maybe you don't want to be perceived as being weak. And sometimes when we're going through something really hard, it can, the effect on it can be that we just don't really feel like ourselves anymore. And we need someone to come alongside us and to encourage us and help us feel like ourselves again. I think that's the sentiment that James is getting at. We have to learn to invite safe people into our painful moments in life. God did not intend that we uh, suffer alone. He didn't design us that way. So we need help from other people. Let's look at the next section, starting with the second half of verse 15. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. So here's just an incredibly helpful insight from James, suffering makes us vulnerable to compromise. Suffering makes us vulnerable to compromise. Sometimes when we're suffering, we don't use our best judgment. Sometimes our self-control is inhibited. Like just to illustrate, like maybe you're suffering because someone else is mistreating you. So what's the temptation? Respond in kind, right? Mistreat them back. Or maybe in that situation you might sin in the way you talk about that person to other people. Or you might sin by harboring bitterness toward that person in your heart or refusing to forgive them. Or maybe it's in, coming from the other direction. Maybe the reason you're suffering is, is because of your own sin in your life. Maybe you're just reaping what you've sown. Maybe you've, you've done something you regret and you're dealing with the consequences and you're in the middle of the fallout. And your suffering isn't so much a matter of circumstance as it is a matter of conscience. I think James' instruction applies in either case, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, the reason I went to all that trouble a moment ago to explain these Greek words, which are translated sick in this passage, the reason I would bore you with all of this original language stuff is to hopefully clarify for you what James means when he says that you may be healed in verse 16. Because if we understand this passage to be referring only to physical healing, uh, then we've taken, I think, too narrow an interpretation of the text. It certainly speaks to physical healing, but I don't think that's the only thing that James is really dealing with here. And if we take too narrow an interpretation of the text, then we also will take too narrow an application of the text. So, I don't think healed in verse 16 refers to physical restoration only. I think it refers to spiritual restoration. I think it has to do with the restoration of a whole being. James is not exclusively concerned 
with the healing of the body. He recognizes that our souls need to be cared for also. So James is saying in, in verses 14 to 16, if you're weary or if you're hurting or if you're depressed or anxious or if you're afraid or if you're confused or if you're mourning or you're in grief, or if you're bitter, or if you're exhausted, or if you're spiritually beaten down and ashamed, or if you're lonely, if there's like anything in your life that's causing you distress in your soul, then don't isolate, but call your people, call your community, call the elders of your church, and have them pray, and God will lift you up. James is not just dealing with physical restoration. He's, he's trying to make a point about spiritual restoration. Now, I've I've taught this passage before, but one thing that jumped out at me this week uh, as I was preparing is just that James instructs us to call the elders of our church. Like, why them? What makes them so special? I mean, like, no offense to Jake and Phil and Barry and Rob, but, like, did they acquire some sort of, like, unique and special healing power when they became elders of our church? Like, why does it have to be the elders? Why does James specify elders? I think the answer to that question becomes clear when we understand that James is talking about spiritual restoration and not just physical restoration. Because part of this exchange that James outlines involves confession, and you shouldn't confess sin to just anybody. I think James's presumption here is that the elders of the church are safe and trustworthy and gentle and compassionate people who are directly accountable to Jesus Christ for how they shepherd their congregation. Now, why is that important? It's because James's goal is for this weary person who is in despair uh, to be restored spiritually. And when unsafe people get access to intimate details about your sin struggles, the effect is the exact opposite of spiritual restoration. Um, this is very personal to me because I'm a survivor of spiritual abuse. And the abuse that I suffered in my early 20s happened in the context of confession. I had a sin issue in my life, and I trusted a pastor at my church with that information, and he turned out not to be a safe person. And he shared that information with another pastor at our church who was also not a safe person. And what should have been a restorative and healing and life-giving process for me instead became a very damaging process. Uh, in which I was compelled by the leaders of my church to share, uh, kind of hang my dirty laundry out in front of more people than was safe or was necessary, and all in the name of, like, transparency, right? Well, you got to be transparent. And it took me the better part of 10 years to heal from that experience. So that's why I think James instructs us to call the elders. I think his presumption is that elders have kind of been vetted before they become elders of the church, and they've demonstrated that they are safe and that they are trustworthy people. So confess your sin, absolutely. We're not off the hook for confession. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Confess it to the person you sinned against. Confess it to someone you can trust. But never confess sin outside the influence of that sin. I'd be very, very cautious about doing that. And absolutely never confess sin to someone who has not proven to you that they are a safe person to handle that confession. Now let's look at the rest of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So remember that in James, righteousness refers to right conduct. Uh, when James speaks in this verse of a righteous person, 
Uh, he is referring to someone whose lifestyle is marked by obedience to God, faithfulness to God. So this is why he encourages us to confess our sin, because confession is constituent to right relationship with God, and confession is constituent to right relationship with other people. He goes on to give us an example of the power of prayer. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The story James is referencing takes place in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Uh, the people of Israel had turned away from following the one true God, and they had turned to the false gods of the Canaanites. And so God punishes them by withholding rain for three years. And then in 1 Kings 18.1, 18, God says to Elijah, I'm going to send the rain again. And after Elijah exposes the false prophets as frauds on Mount Carmel, the people of Israel repent, and Elijah prays for the rain to come, and it does. So Elijah's prayer was in line with God's revealed will. He knew that God would send the rain, but God waited to send the rain again until Elijah had prayed for the rain to come. So our prayers influence how God acts in our lives. And I don't totally understand that, to be honest with you. Like, I don't have you know, the full grip on what it means that our prayers influence the way that God acts in our lives, but that's just what I see in Scripture. And I don't have a whole ton of time to explore it this morning, but when we pray and our prayers are in line with God's will, he allows us by some sort of like mysterious grace to influence how he will act in a given situation. And if you'd like to know more about that, I just encourage you to do a topical study on prayer in your Bible, uh, which you can access at any time. So let's look at the last two verses now um, as James returns to the subject of spiritual restoration. And I want you to notice the tenderness in his words. Because uh, the book of James sometimes gets a bad rap. Sometimes we read it and we feel like he's harsh because he just gives a lot of commands. Um, but I want you to see just the tenderness and the encouragement in his words in these last two verses. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So those who've lost their way are the sick ones of the church family. They've wandered away. The, the Greek word for wander is the same word that we get our word planet from. They use the word to, to describe certain celestial bodies that seemed to move around in the sky. And wandering ones need to be brought back into the fold. So James isn't referring to evangelism. He's referring to restoration. This is someone who has been in the family and who has wandered away. And this restoration Maybe a restoration of physical health, but it's a re really a restoration to spiritual health. It's about being brought back to the path towards spiritual maturity. It's about being restored to the community of God. It's about being restored to a lifestyle of faithfulness and obedience to God that results in God's blessing. Now, remember what James has already warned us about, that suffering makes us vulnerable to compromise. And sometimes compromise in one area of our life can sort of metastasize and begin to affect other areas of our life. And the compound effect of that compromise can lead us so far from the spiritual safety of obedience to God that it's like we never knew him at all. 
It's not that you can like lose your salvation or that God will stop loving you. But nowhere in Scripture does God promise to protect us from the natural consequences of sin in our life. So that's the danger here that James is trying to get at. In the, middle, in the middle of suffering, when you're vulnerable to compromise, just be aware that there will be a temptation for you to begin to make tiny exceptions and allowances in your life, and that those can grow, and it never just stays in one part of your life. You can't compartmentalize it all. So if you've compromised in this area, that compromise could become compromised in this area. And pretty soon the compound effect of that is that you can find yourself like way over here, and those people need to be brought back, James says. So the application here, if you're the wandering person, the application is to come back. If you're not the wandering person, say you know a wandering person in your life, maybe it's a friend or someone in your family, the application isn't to go after that person and preach at them and pester them and shame them and exasperate them. But it is to very gently warn them of the danger of drifting off into sin and warn them of the damage that it can do in their life. So when you do this, be gentle. Be gentle. Don't be passive, but be gentle. James says two things happen when we very lovingly and gently pursue those who are wandering away from faithfulness to Jesus. The first thing he says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save their soul from death. Now, it's critical to note that death in the book of James is not a euphemism for hell. It just refers to life apart from the plan and purposes and blessing of God. So James is referring just to the right now consequences of sin. When we go after those who are wandering off into sin, when we do it gently, when we do it the right way, if they respond to it and if they come back, we can spare them some very devastating consequences that come from that sin, consequences which could even include uh, their physical death. And the second thing he says is whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will cover over a multitude of sins. And these would be sins that could hurt that individual Sins that could hurt their family, sins that could hurt their children, sins that could hurt their friends, sins that could hurt uh, the reputation of Christ in the world. The word cover in verse 20 means to hide. Actually means to hide. So the image here is, is of laying a veil over the person so that when they come back into the community, they wouldn't be identified by the sin that they committed, but instead that they would be identified by the love and by the grace that they had received and that they'd been shown. In other words, the idea is that when they come back, the community would see them as God sees them. It was just incredibly, incredibly beautiful to me. I hope all of you have someone in your life who could cover you like that. Um, Josh Chevalier, who's not here this morning, has done that for me a couple different times. Uh, And as we close now our James series, I just want one last time to reiterate James's thesis statement in this letter, and it is that suffering can be good for us. Suffering can be good for us. It can be profitable. It can be beneficial. It can be for our good. And it's unavoidable. It comes in various forms at various times and in varying degrees. And sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it's inflicted on us 
by someone or something else. But regardless of the circumstances around our suffering, we are called to walk wisely through it in order to grow and to become more spiritually mature than we were before. Now, as we move into our time of communion, I just want to show you a brief video um, that relates to this. Uh, Anderson Cooper did an interview with Stephen Colbert last August that I saw, and it's just haunted me for the past few months, and I want to show you just part of it. And before I do, I'll just give you a little background. Um, Both of these men, if you didn't know, Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, have both dealt with tremendous suffering and loss in their lives. Uh, Stephen Colbert lost his father and brother in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. Anderson Cooper also lost his father when he was 10, and then lost a brother to suicide when he was 21 years old. And this interview that I want to show you part of uh, took place only a few weeks after the passing of Anderson Cooper's mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, this past summer. And I want you to listen to the way that Stephen Colbert explains the meaning of suffering from a Christian perspective, because I just, I don't think I could say it better than him. So let's go ahead and watch. You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember you went on. You went on to say, uh, what, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Yes. It's a gift to exist. It's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. And I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those <laughs> things, because I've heard those from, from uh-huh. both traditions. But I didn't learn it that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened, is that I realized it. Mm-hmm. Is that... And it's a, it's an odd, oddly guilty feeling. It, you don't, it doesn't mean you. I don't are want. Happy I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, um, yeah. not everybody is, right. and not, I'm not always. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the most positive thing to do. Then you have to be grateful for all of it. It's, you can't pick and choose what you're grateful for, and. Then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Empathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person. Right. Which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. Right. And so, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering. And... However, imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's, that's what I mean. It's, it's about the f- fullness of your humanity. Mm-hmm. What's the point of being here and being human if you can't be the most human you can be? I'm not saying best because you're going to be a bad person and a mm-hmm. most human. I want to be the most human I can be. Mm-hmm. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. 
Well, one of the things my mom uh, would often say is that it, she said, you know, I, I, uh, I never ask why me. Like, why did this happen to me? She would always say, uh, why not me? Why, why would me be exempt from sure. what has befallen sure. everybody, countless others over, over, over the centuries? And I, and I think that, that's another thing that has helped me think, yeah, of course, why not me? Uh, this is, this is mm -hmm. part of, of, of being alive. I mean, this is, uh, the suffering is the, you know, sadness, suffering, these are all, you, you know, it's, you can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. And, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God does it too. Mm -hmm. That you're really not alone. God does it too. The great gift of the sacrifice of Christ is that God suffers too. God suffers too. And that's why we take communion every week at our church. It's to celebrate the fact that God recognized our suffering, our helplessness, and didn't leave us to sort it out on our own. But he sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth to suffer with us. And then ultimately to suffer for us by giving his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. The Apostle Paul wrote that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. So we remember that Jesus suffered with and suffered for us. And we remind ourselves, especially during this Advent season, that, that someday all suffering will come to an end because Jesus will return to heal our broken creation, to heal our broken communities, to heal our broken relationships, to heal our broken culture, and even to heal our broken hearts. Let's pray together, and then the tables will be open. Father, thank you for this series through the book of James. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for showing us how to navigate life in a broken world in a wise way, the way that Jesus did as he came to be with us, to suffer with us, to be the model of true humanity, and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray this morning that those of us in this room who are suffering would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened. And I pray that that suffering and the way that only you can make it would be for our good. We ask all of it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.